This is a word fitly spoken by words about reading the scriptures, about preaching the scriptures, and about the mission on which the scripture sends all of us. We here at A Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in his holy word. I'm Willie Grills, here as always with Zelwyn Heidi. Joining us today, the Reverend David Appled. We are here to talk about Zelwyn's patron saint, the prophet Amos. How's it going, guys? Going well. Yeah, he's my patron saint because, you know, I I, I feel him. He's he's neither the, the son of a prophet or a prophet himself in his own words. And I'm just a the son of farmers, and so I, I can I can resonate with with Amos. That's, it's quite a mantle for you to wear, Zelwyn. But I guess somebody has to wear the mantle, right? Zelwyn also <laughs> born in southern Judea. For those of you that don't know, <laughs> and yeah, and prophesying to Israel. True story, right? No. <laughs> you know, so it's going to be. We're continuing our our discussion of the prophets of the twelve, specifically the twelve minor prophets. So it's going to be fun. we got a lot of good content coming up. We don't even know if we're going to get through the whole book. We'll see how it goes. But first, gratuitous weather posting. Gentlemen, how are things in your various regions? I was actually <laughs> able to be outside today, which is, and actually this whole past week has been, like if it's under 90 degrees in July in Kentucky, it's, it's pretty nice. So it was, it's good down here. Okay, good. I'm glad that was the weather. I thought you were going to say you are in a rough neighborhood or something. <laughs> Didn't want to leave. <laughs> yeah, hot and dry here. I think it got up into the 90s today, but it's a pretty nice evening. So I'm enjoying the weather, and it's still been raining. I am i can't really complain. Very good. And in western Iowa, a little warm. Had some tornadoes last week or so, you know, touching down in uh, west central. Uh, but, other, but here, alarmingly mild and a little bit of rain. So that's good. Sweet corn season, you know, is in. Everybody's <laughs> excited. Fair time alarmingly mild it should be it should be wilder like i grew up in kentucky i expect extreme humidity and very dangerous winters not because of the snow but because of the mountains you know but and you know coming across illicit stills and whatnot (laughs) anyway time to move on to amos and folks we're going to start well actually we're not going to start just yet let's get a little historical background on the book yeah, we, we want to kind of situate this a little bit. We're, again, we're continuing in the Minor Prophets. I think one of the things that we'll, we'll probably spend a bit of time talking about here is the, it's certainly not unique to Amos, but Amos does focus his prophecy within the boundaries of Israel, uh, whereas quite a few of the Minor Prophets are looking at God's judgment on the nations around them. But with Amos, you get almost, he does mention the other nations at the very beginning, but it's very focused on Israel, and so it's good to look at the you know what's happening at this time. We're in the mid eighth century BC, sometime during the King Uzziah and the King Jeroboam. Uzziah is king in Judah. Jeroboam is in Israel, and uh, you get a sort of an interesting historical detail. It's two years before an earthquake. We're told that in the second verse here, or sorry, in the first verse. And uh, I don't know, Zelwyn, if if you have any particular knowledge of this earthquake, I don't think it's mentioned in the historical books. The prophet Zechariah mentions it, but I I don't know that it plays a particularly large role in Amos's prophecy. No, I think think it's just a historical notice, like you say, so that we're able to a little bit more accurately figure out when Amos is writing his prophecy. I I don't re- recall any specific notice of it in any of the 
historical books. For our listeners' sake, the the big dates for Israel, I think that the the exile, the Assyrians come in and carry off quite a few of them, and then they import the Assyrian strategy when you exile a country is to import people from other places in, and so it totally changes the culture of Israel in the northern kingdom. I think the year that, that comes to my mind is 722 BC. So Amos is, I don't know, 50 years before that. We don't have an exact date. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's also a time of general prosperity in Israel. I mean, am I, correct me if I'm wrong on this, David, but we're we're actually dealing with a time in Israel's history when everything is kind of looking up. They're having uh, military successes. Things are looking great. Things are stable. Jeroboam, who is the the second Jeroboam, not the first Jeroboam, but the second Jeroboam, is a strong king. So, I mean, this would seem kind of odd for Amos to come in and say, look, what you're doing is wrong. You're about to go away into judgment. They probably would have looked at him and said, who, you know, who are you kidding? We should mention this is the same same time frame as prophet Jonah under Jeroboam's rule is when Jonah is specifically mentioned in second Kings. And but he's mentioned as the, the one who prophesied that the, the borders of Israel would be extended under King Jeroboam. And they are. So you're right. It's a military prosperous time. And by all accounts in the book, there's at least for some people, there's economic prosperity as well. So it's not a general poverty or like everything's like, they're not actively being invaded. And this would, uh, Amos's message would, would seem very strange to them if they aren't going to listen to it. You know, Israel's great, right? Yeah, outward. <laughs> Outward appearances, it's it's a good time to be in Israel. It's a good time to be in the Northern Kingdom. But I mean, do we want to do we want to dig in then to his specific message? I mean, we have the, the the historical situation set up. Then the way that one of the things I love about the book of Amos is his imagery. I mean, he has one of the most picturesque of all of the books of the Minor Prophets, and I think it begins almost right away in chapter one. Yeah, I think you're right. The images, and we'll try to bring some of this out as we go. There's there's really not enough time. You could have a couple of podcasts just to like the imagery of God's judgment because the book is predominantly, no, it's more than that. It's it's nearly completely all an oracle of of judgment on Israel. and But you get some very vivid mm-hmm. descriptions of what that judgment is going to be like. And so from the beginning, mm-hmm. this comes out as, Uh, the Lord is roaring like a lion, right? So the first, I'll just read the second verse. This is after Amos is mentioned. He said, that's Amos, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Which then the whole rest of the book is this roar of the Lord that's going forth. Uh, the the lion uh, roaring as when he's about to take his prey. In fact, in chapter three, you have that imagery come up again of of roaring. But the way that Amos begins to talk about the judgment that's coming upon Israel is actually I'm pretty clever, I think, because of the way he approaches it. He doesn't just write out start with it and say, you know, Israel, you're under judgment. Although he's going to get to that, he kind of starts in a going a different direction. He's kind of circling. Do you want to explain? You know what I'm talking about, David? Yeah, it's, I think it's like a trap. 
right? Mm-hmm. So he, uh, so he's got. I think there's seven of these, and it's very repetitive in terms of the mm-hmm. the words. So it'll say for three transgressions of Damascus, this is the capital of Syria, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And then he talks about the punishment that's coming on Syria. And he does the same thing for Gaza for three punish for three transgressions of Gaza. This is Philistines mm-hmm. or the Philistines, and for four. I will not revoke the punishment. And then he does the same thing with Tyre, with Edom, with the Ammonites, with the Moabites. And uh, you can just imagine if you're reading this in Israel or in Judah, you're thinking, yeah, these are our enemies, right? They're going down. This is good. And then all of a sudden, for three transgressions, this is in chapter two, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Okay, so maybe if you're in the northern kingdom, you're still feeling pretty good about yourself. And then the the trap is fully sprung, I think, in verse 8, because this is what the whole rest... Mm-hmm. I mean, Judah gets mentioned a few times. Jerusalem is mentioned, those who are at ease in Jerusalem. But it's really focusing on the northern kingdom. So finally you get, for three transgressions of Israel and for four... I will not revoke the punishment. And I think it's it's actually, it's it's fantastic how he does this too. I mean, you mentioned he starts with Israel's enemies. And I think it's great because the first four are 100% the enemies of Israel. Like totally a foreign people, completely somebody else. They're probably thinking like, yeah, we're they're really going to get it because you're dealing with Syria, you're dealing with the Philistines, you're dealing with Tyre, which is on the coast, which would be Canaanites. And then the Edomites, of course, are also in there. But with all of these, there are foreign people. And to hear that God is judging them would probably be a very welcome message because we're always happy when God is judging somebody else, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Let the enemies fall. Let the enemies fall. But then, this is where it gets great, because then in the second half, with the Ammonites and the Moabites, those are kindred peoples, right? They're the descendants of Lot. And so it's starting to come a little closer to home. They're still enemies, but now they're brothers. But then, like you said, it comes to Judah. And finally, it comes home to his main point, which is saying, if I am not, if the Lord is not going to spare all of these other peoples for their transgressions and what they have done and all the horrible things they have done, what makes you think that he's going to overlook Israel? Yeah, and it actually, what it then goes into is, in some ways, and we could talk about this maybe a little bit, guys, the the punishment or the judgment on Israel and, and Judah too is even more severe, right? Because of all the nations of the earth, you are the ones who knew my law most clearly, right? Now, that's not to say that the other nations get a, a clear pass by any right. means. Well, no, you're, you're absolutely right. There's a greater culpability for the Jews or for the people of Judah than for the Philistines. Not that great judgment won't rain down but these men who had a greater knowledge and who were given a greater measure who ought to have known you know that their sin is greater and their punishment will be greater in a way well that's paul's whole point in romans right that yep. the the one who didn't know the law will still uh, be judged and will still suffer the punishment but the one who sins knowing the law will suffer a far greater judgment or as jesus says you know it'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it will be for you who, right. who knew the law. Yeah. And to be clear, that doesn't mean the pagan nations are getting a, you know, have a get out of jail free card or somehow escaping judgment. On the contrary, 
their ignorance or supposed ignorance is no defense you know without jumping into more into more uh, roman theology there yeah i think you and and you can hear this this is common in the epistles you're right paul says you know i i don't worry about those who are on the outside for god will judge them but when he taught when his, his concern is always for his own the congregations that he's been involved with right the church let the judgment begin within the household of god not to say that the other nations yet yeah, will not face god's judgment but it starts in the household. I, I should also point out, before I forget about it too, the the wonderful imagery that I was talking about here. In every one of these judgments, it says that the Lord is going to light a fire and that that imagery of, of lighting the fire upon these various nations to, as a sign of his judgment, I think is just a, a fantastic way of, of tying it all together so that the fire is finally coming home, right? Yeah. <laughs> And this this is a good place we that this will come up again as we go, but the God as judge, not just of his people, Israel, but he's he's the universal judge here. And so you you get a very clear picture of of his yeah, his his un the, the re, his reach is universal and he has the authority to judge all of these people, not just those who he's made this you know, very intimate covenant with, but all people, because he's the creator of all. And this is, is very clear in the book of Amos, God's transcendence and his power over all things, which is manifest in the book of Amos in, in judgment. And the, the severity of his judgment is, is further emphasized by his power. Yeah, he is he is the the Lord who has the right to do this. It's not like he's just, you know, forcing his judgment upon people's, but his judgment is just because like you say, he is the creator. He is the one who is the the Lord of all things. And so for us to transgress his law is to to bring guilt upon ourselves, especially when we know it and what he wants of us. And it, maybe it's worth going into at, in chapter two, the this will come up throughout the, the book itself, but just let me just read what the actual listing off of the, you almost get like a courtroom here, right? And you're going to hear a listing off of the charges. What are these three transgressions and four for which he is going to send the punishment? So this is chapter two, verse six. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. And then he, there's a little more that follows after it, but those are the charges uh, leveled against Israel. Yeah, and it's it's worth noting here that even even though the foreign nations, especially because I'm thinking of like back in chapter one, where I mean, like Damascus threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. This would be uh, one three, or Gaza and in one six carries into exile a whole people. Okay, to deliver them up to Edom, Edom, to sell them into slavery. These are things that we would probably say today. Yeah, these are horrible things. You know, how could they do these kinds of things? Or Moab, for example, burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. That's two verse one. And yet 
all of those things are on the same level, if actually kind of in a second level, I mean, if we understand it correctly, to what Israel is doing, because they know the law and knowing the law, they should behave better. I mean, I don't know how how you want to put it, but they still do these things while imagining that they are serving the Lord. And so they, they magnify their guilt even beyond these, you know, arguably very horrible things. <laughs> they don't even have the excuse of ignorance, maybe, is what you're... That's what I hear you saying, right? They can't say, well, yeah. we just didn't know about that. You know, that the Lord... There's a Seinfeld episode <laughs> where George, George uh, gets fired for something. And he, he's, he tries to play it off as well. At my old job, we did that all the time, you know. Um, so I just didn't know the rules of this place. <laughs> Or, or maybe even to say, like, you know, we might say, oh, but, you know, selling the righteous for silver or the needy for a pair of sandals, you know, maybe those things don't sound so bad to us. Yeah. Or this or the man and his father go into the same girl, this kind of sexual perversion. You know, maybe that isn't such a horrible thing. It's just it's private, right? This is these aren't, you know, <laughs> this is just very this just happens behind closed doors and, you know, whatever you need to do to get ahead in business. It's it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> it's 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 part of you know another kingdom or a different sphere, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Oof, oof. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, it's out in the open. How many times yeah. do we hear that though? Well, it's th- there's a type of order and a type of conduct that only that only extends to the church or perhaps to home, and there it stops at the foot of the door and the lintel. It go it goes no further. Whereas the reality is God's law, God's order, God's will extends far beyond your cul-de-sac, far beyond your neighborhood, far beyond your trailer park or wherever you may be, certainly far beyond the doors of your church and certainly far beyond your office. God's law, God's will, God's desire extends into all spheres and all things. And everybody is being judged here at Amos for the sins, uh, for their sins. And they're being judged corporately. That's a theme we come back to in the Bible all the time, being judged corporately. And, and why can God do that? Because his justice is so perfect. And the order that he has established functions in such a way that the the head, that the people underneath the head are judged for it. So, but here in Amos, it's interesting. You have the leaders called out too, but a lot of times in the minor prophets as well, you start to see more of the individual's what we would call, I guess, the layman or just the civilians, right? They mm-hmm. too are being called out and shown to be culpable. You know, there's not. Do we have talk of a faithful remnant coming up at all? Um, there in the in the judgments, there's like a little bit left over. Exactly. Like you, you always have a few faithful people, but they suffer under the judgment of the Lord along with the wicked in society. Eh, I just find it interesting. I like a black pill right before a break. <laughs> With that, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you're hearing and want more, visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, and history www.wordfitlyspoken.org
And we are back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grill, Zoen Heidi, David Appled here talking about the prophet Amos. So guys, let's pick right up where we left off here. Moving through the text, what are we going to next? Well, after chapters 1 and 2, where you, you get the full prophecy against Israel, in chapter 3, he's, 3 to 6, I think, forms the next section here. And you get a little more of the detail and kind of the the backstory, I guess, that this judgment from Amos or this prophecy of Amos doesn't just sort of fall out of out of the blue. And so chapter three kind of sets the sets the stage for it. Chapter four talks about a number of times and ways in which the Lord tried to bring the people back to him, call them to repentance, and we we'll talk about that in a minute. And then five and six a little more clearly delineate what the the sins of the people are. And like we were saying before, it's very graphic, actually. But I think it'd be good for us at the beginning here. We we kind of we talked about generally God's justice and his his demand of justice in Israel. But we didn't talk about the specifics here. One of the specifics that come out comes out in Amos is the mistreatment of the poor and the oppression of the poor. And so I think it'd be good for us just to talk about what that looks like biblically so that we're not just assuming that in our hearers or, or in anyone who might benefit from this discussion. Yeah, especially because when we hear something like the oppression of the poor, it's very easy to inject into it all kinds of modern secular notions of justice, what we might call social justice, right? How would we define social justice in the modern sense? Oh man, uh, without being like, too pejorative, <laughs> it's it's sort of like something bad happened to me, and that's not right. <laughs> and I, I I guess it is pretty hard to define because it's so fluid of a thing, right? What we define, what has been defined as social justice, maybe like in recent years, is certainly not the definition that we might have today. Yeah, let's just for today, let's let's in the most diplomatic terms. Social justice is a concept of or concepts of just relationships between the individual and society, what a certain group perceives as a fair and just relationship. Man, that was good. Sure. <laughs> Willie nailed it. All right. <laughs> be, on, be on Fox News in a week. <laughs> but the reason why that's so problematic is kind of what I, what I was getting at because what one group might perceive as a, a you know injustice as a miscarriage of justice might actually be contrary to God's own definition of justice. Yeah, right the the rights that we assume and that we think that we are owed in you know in modern times are are not always the same rights. Or the same, I, I even hesitate to use the word rights in the Bible. Uh, they're not the same commands as are given to Israel in the Old mm -hmm. Testament. Yeah, our problem is not that we aren't getting an equal footing, which I think is kind of where social justice is coming in. This absolute egalitarian ideal, which means that, you know, when, when everybody is super, then nobody will be, to quote the Incredibles. But God's justice is a conformity to his holiness, right? It's conformity to his law. It's actually going back to an actual standard, an actual yep. defined, his defined will that actually tells us what he expects and not just some sort of egalitarianism. So oppressing the poor then is not because, oh, it's just the rich and the rich are bad and there's this wage gap or, you know, this 
wealth inequality, but rather because they are using what they should have had from the Lord in a way that God never intended it to be used. Yeah, I think there is, it is worth pointing out though, in Amos, there is a, the rich or who, you know, whoever these people are who are oppressing the poor, it must be the rich or the upper kind of crest here. The the criticism is that they, instead of caring for the poor in some way, they're using them to enhance themselves, right? Just to puff themselves up. So they sell poor for silver. They trample on the, the heads of the poor. They take taxes from the poor when they, they don't even have the taxes to be given. Um, and this goes back in the law to the various laws about taking care of that the rich are actually given their wealth, not just for their own personal accounts, but they're act- they do have a responsibility to care for those who are not rich. Yeah, and it's important to mention, though, that this isn't saying that then they should give everything up so that they would be poor in an equal way with the, with the actual poor. No, God raises up men of means in order to take care of this part of society. And that strikes us as odd because it almost sounds like we're arguing for a welfare state and we're not. We're not talking about picking pockets and doing that sort of thing. We're talking about men recognizing their obligation to the less fortunate. Yeah, let me maybe an example is actually helpful from biblical the biblical uh, witness. If you if you look at the book of Ruth, you get a good example of this, I think, where Boaz um, is a man of means, right? He's a he seems to be a wealthy farmer of some sort, and he, as his men are are reaping the the fields, the harvest, they leave plenty for Ruth and whoever else is out there, kind of gathering, gleaning in the fields. That doesn't mean that Boaz was, you know, <laughs> he didn't impoverish himself, but he left, according to the law, he he did what God wanted him to do, which was to also care for the poor, use his the blessing that God had given to him to be able to provide for those who didn't have land. You know, this is something I find particularly ironic about the modern social justice movement as compared to, for lack of a better term, justice for the poor in the Bible. Modern social justice is born out of individualism. So everybody is unique and special and different. Therefore, these systems must be put into place so that we're not too different as far as social standing goes. So there's all this leeway to be whatever you want to be, but from an economic point of view or a social point of view, they want everything to be an even playing field, you know, or everybody to have the same opportunity. Now, they talk a lot about communal living and community and community activism, but really, modern social justice is born out of individualism and differences. Biblical justice and biblical concepts of charity are born out of the community. And these laws are set up so that there are provisions for the marginalized or for the needy within the community. So God tells you not to glean the edges of your field for the poor. God commands the rich to care for the poor because caring for the tribe is a primary responsibility of those who live within it. And this is a principle that continues on through the New Testament, wherein those of the household of faith receive preferential treatment when it comes to charity from Christians. Yeah, and I think that's that's a great point, Willie. The, let those who are rich be rich in good works, and he who 
has let him give generously. I mean, these, this is not specific just to Israel. And well, now that that's part of the civil law, so that's passed away. We don't have to <laughs> we don't have to worry about that anymore. <laughs> Again, Amos, the the judgment on Israel, I think, is very helpful to have this as you're reading it to think about. Okay, this is spoken to the people of God right now. They were idolaters in many ways. They were completely. You know, this is after the split between North and South. So there's all kinds of problems up there, but they're still God's people and the way that they ought to be caring for one another and and the way that Amos takes them to task is instructive also for the church and how we care for one another. Well, we begin to neglect care for our neighbor when, as is the case in Amos here, or in the people described in Amos, where Everything becomes about self-gratification and self-pleasure, drunkenness, that sort of thing. It becomes an introspective or a hedonistic kind of perspective. Today, I, I think we have, in many cases, kind of the opposite issue, where communication is so broad and we have access to you know, people on the other side of the world you know, so easily through modern communication means that it's very easy for us to feel good, you know. We'll buy like half a goat for for somebody for some family in another continent and feel pretty good and that's a good work. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, or we'll help this that here. But it's it's either looking in at yourself, as is the case in this book, or looking well beyond the people that God has put in front of you. Community and rallying around that is very important. Localism, for lack of a better word, is important in the scriptures. We've lost the concept of community, ta- you know, family, you know, church, you know, family, church, town, county, nation, state, right? And when you lose sight of that, and when you divvy everything up and make everything about warfare instead of living in harmony with the neighbors that God has given you, then you get all kinds of crazy stuff. You know, we, we no longer become neighbors; we become warring factions occupying the same space. And we don't hear each other because we don't listen to each other. And we don't really care. Right. Because it's a lot easier now nowadays to hit that PayPal charity button or the GoFundMe button far, far away than it is to have a conversation with the bum two blocks from your house. Yeah, we've we've depersonalized welfare. And that's why, you know, so the modern welfare state is all about how we have this, you know, generic kind of obligation for the, the benefit of the whole, even though we never meet the vast majority of the beneficiaries, or in some cases, we never meet them at all. But that's not what God envisions. He doesn't want us to just give money to a cause. I mean, it's certainly going to be helpful to some people, but he actually wants us to help the very real, tangible, concrete neighbors that we have. If we're if we're looking beyond the needy man who is at our own gate, if we are, you know, the rich man looking past Lazarus while still imagining that we are, you know, doing something that is God pleasing. Well, we all know where the rich man ended up, right? Or is that too law focused for you? <laughs> You're speaking yeah, the way of the laws. Well, that's what the way Amos talks, right? <laughs> but like, we shouldn't make it, you know, sound like it, like it's it's. But the concept is simple, but the execution is is difficult. But it's something we have to recapture. I think if if we can just start looking at each other as humans again, and as people that we have to live with, difficult as it is, maybe maybe that's step one. But we all, we, look, I'm guilty of it. I like to go home, 
draw the shades and I'm done. I'm withdrawn. And, and, and as pastors though, especially, right? God calls us to get out and be in the community and be witnesses to Jesus Christ. And that's part of this. I mean, that's part of the, of charity, right? Is sharing the gospel. It's an extremely difficult thing for a lot of us, myself included, because we like our space. We like where it's comfortable. You know, we, we don't, we don't like to talk to people that we don't like, <laughs> you know, we don't like to have difficult conversations all the time, you know, and, and it's, and it's worse in Amos's case because did these people really, you know, a rich, a rich benefactor could send a, a slave out to go give alms on his behalf. So these guys are just really without excuse, but it's like, have you ever had an awkward conversation with someone who probably did need something or, you know, you get accosted by the guy on the street panhandling. You don't necessarily have to give money to a panhandler or a scam artist or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. But there's something that betrays our own sinfulness when we're dealing with vulnerable members of society or perhaps people with mental illnesses on the street, poor hygiene, because, again, living on the street, that kind of thing. Our old Adam really bristles there, you know, because this is you're coming into contact with, depending on where you are, real poverty, real sickness. And it is ugly because this is the world we live in. This is the fallen world. It isn't, it isn't beautiful. It isn't all, you know, picturesque portraits of beaches and Machu Picchu and cat posters. You know, you get down, you shake a dirty hand and you, you look a man in the eye and, and you talk to him. And that, it's not always the easiest thing. And yet that's what God calls us to do to, even when someone is difficult, even when someone stinks, even when someone isn't all there, we're called to love them and to care for them in a, in a, in a way which makes sense right. and in a wise right. way. Well, this, and that actually ties in this oppression of the poor. I think it, this discussion is tying in, in well with one of the other critiques that Amos has is that the people who are at ease, woe to you who are at ease and who are in comfort. This is where all the talk about drinking wine comes in. Do we want to tackle alcohol in the last few minutes <laughs> no, of this segment? We'll just say this. Right? <laughs> do we, how, how, much, how, how pietistic we'll do we this. want to come across it in this? It is uh, emblematic of a, a lack of care for the poor is, is emblematic that you are spending all that time then on yourself. So the hedonism that comes out, look right. at, uh, if, right. our, if our listeners want to see this real clear in Amos, look at chapter six, the first maybe 10 verses or so, you know, instead of spending time in the community or what I, I like what you're saying about localism, that time is then spent just on myself, right? I, I spend it on just me, my own pleasures, my own cares. And of course, in Amos, that comes out as, you know, you're just drinking wine. These people, <laughs> the people of Israel at this time are winos. <laughs> you're over here getting blitzed and ignoring God's law. Well, I mean, think to, to use Amos's, I mean, this would be Amos 6, starting at verse 4, where he says, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory. You know, so they're rich. They're just, you know, being idle. They stretch themselves out on their couches, eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils. You know, that... I don't know. I don't know about you guys, but that's, I mean, that sounds like a pretty nice way of living, right? This is the American <laughs> dream. <laughs> but, yeah, this is the American dream. I don't have to work. I can still make money. But are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. 
they have no concern for their for their brothers, but are living this purely pleasure oriented lifestyle. And and you you mentioned with the alcohol there, Willie. You know, maybe we will come across as pietists, but eh, whatever. I think the the alcoholism is just. I mean, it's the clearest example of what's going on here, because by giving themselves over to wine here, by getting drunk. And, you know, just living for the moment, so to speak, they are showing uh, in one of the clearest ways this kind of self-centeredness, this lack of concern for the neighbor, just living for for the pleasure, really. I think it's important to, to point out here that God bringing his justice into an unjust society like this or into judging them for their unjustness is what we're ultimately going to see in Amos it's going to bring in better things, right? So it's painful to read it. And it's certainly, it's not the kind of book that's like, oh, what a pleasant read. I spent this morning sitting <laughs> sitting down by the river and I was reading the book of Amos and I just was meditating on it. Yeah, I was, I was halfway through a fifth of Jameson <laughs> and was throwing silver bars into the river and reading Amos and felt <laughs> a little convicted. No, 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 you were... You were listening to Amos on your Alexa. (laughs) But what I was saying was this, um, (laughs) God doesn't allow these things to just go on forever, right? He, there's certainly an aspect where he passes over sins and he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But thankfully, he doesn't just turn his back on, uh, on all this stuff, right? Eventually he's going to act and he's going to bring his judgment. And that's, that's actually good. All right, and I think that's a good place to take our next break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. We'll be back in just a few moments. A Word Fitly Spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all His fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's Word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. In the last segment, we talked a little bit about social justice, the superiority of the blue-collar people, and the necessity of uh, collective bargaining. But now we are moving on to a very fun topic, the identity of God, uh, descriptions of God, who God is, and how God acts, the God of hosts. Yeah, you get in Amos, there's a, it seems to be, I think, a favorite title for God here, or a, a, the way that he names God is is usually tied in with of hosts. So it's either the Lord of hosts, sometimes it's the God of hosts. The fullest expression is in chapter 3, verse 13. I'll just read it here. It says, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. So that's the full title. And the point here in Amos is this emphasis on God's, uh, we said this before, on God's transcendence and on his power. Zelwyn, what are the possibilities for what this means? What, who is the God of hosts and what, what is that? How are we to understand that? We use the, the, the terminology of hosts because of our traditionalism, kind of the same way that we have the Lord's Prayer 
uh, the way that we do because we hang on to this language. King James all the way, right, Willie? Always. Uh, We're talking always. about the Bible here, right? The Bible. Yeah, exactly. But the of hosts would literally be like of armies. Right. right? It's, a, it's military yeah. language. It's military language. So we're saying the Lord God, the God of armies or the God of battalions or, or however you want to translate it as. And I think the, the most common way to understand it would be that these armies are the angelic hosts, the angels forming military squadrons and that sort of thing. Right, right. I, I don't know how else you would take it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, God's not contracting with Blackwater or anything like that. <laughs> you could, you could make it, um, like sometimes the Israelite armies are called his hosts, so they are. Okay, but, but I sure. think that is pretty clear in Amos that it's we're talking about more than just earthly armies because the the judgment is. I mean, yes, it's going to come through Assyria, and and the Assyrian exile is at least in part what Amos has in mind here, but. That's not that's not the hosts of Israel. Those are the hosts of Assyria, and uh, even those are under mm-hmm. his power. So I, I agree with you. It's got to be angelic hosts. And the point there is that this is a, a power and an army beyond any earthly comparison, right? So there, mm-hmm. his strength is being stressed all throughout the book of Amos, and that strength is going to be exercised. It's going to work itself out in his judgment coming quickly on his people. Yeah, I know we, we, as Christians, we tend to like to, we like, we gravitate towards the, the warm, fuzzy images of Jesus, right? Jesus, you know, as the shepherd, Jesus as the one who's taking care of us. And there's nothing wrong with those images, but the Bible very often does present God in terms of this military might. I mean, if we can imagine a king standing before tens of thousands of people and what the kind of power that he has to wield, you know, and the the victory that would belong to him. Yet God himself is in control of armies far beyond any earthly army. Like there's no way we would be able to withstand him militarily because he is so majestic. I mean, Revelation bears that out. You know, we often media portrays, popular culture portrays the last battle at the end of days as if it's actually a battle and it isn't. (laughs) There's like no contest here. This isn't this isn't Rocky. It's not going to be drawn out for four, for even forty five minutes. This is it's done. He shows up and you're done. It's over. I, I can't shake the image of Satan as Ivan Drago. Sorry, but That's go right. on. The, well, the Red Menace, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the, there is no there is no contest when God steps in. You're toast. Yeah, that's a good perspective for us to have too, and it's also good that He is on the Christian side. There's some comfort there. We can call him father and he calls us by name. And that's very important. And and so in that sense, we do have his heavenly hosts fighting on our side. So for us, it's a very positive thing at times. However, for many, this is not a positive thing. This is a dreadful thing. God is our dread sovereign to use, you know, some more archaic language. The one who is worthy <laughs> I we, of. Fear. I think we have to give a nickel to the Valley of Vision now. <laughs> The banner of truth publishing. <laughs> That's a great adjective, yeah. So, so the way that this comes in in Amos, you have this great, and we want to talk a little bit about the day of the Lord. So if he's the Lord of hosts, the God mm-hmm. of hosts, and what does his day mm-hmm. look like? 
well, it's going to look like a day of, like you just mentioned, Willie, like you have in the book of Revelation, where God comes with his power and with his, uh, with his hosts behind him, and he comes to wipe out evil. And so in chapter 5, I believe, chapter 5, verse 18, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man f- fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? So you get a a pretty clear (laughs) description that the day of the Lord is not going to be a pleasant, peaceful kind of a day. Because God is coming in his power, in his majesty, and with his justice to exact justice, in this case, on his own people. This is, and then that leads into actually the maybe a famous verse that people will recognize from Amos, where Amos says, "Let let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever flowing stream," which is, I think, popularly understood to mean God's people are going to do His justice, right? Their lives are going to conform to His law. But I, I I'm really of the opinion that as you read the, that verse in its context, it's actually talking about God's justice coming down from the heavens and coming down as, as this flood of waters. Uh, it's, it's almost a, a reminiscent of the flood that overtook the, the world back in Genesis 6. Yeah, and I mean, and the idea there, I mean, I'm, I'm of that opinion too, David. It's, it's the idea that because God is saying like, I hate, I despise your feasts, I take no delight in all these things, even that he's commanded them to do, but in their hypocrisy are still doing and thinking that they're righteous because of it, so he's saying, take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. And so let my justice roll down like waters. Because then he goes on to continue to rebuke Israel and saying, you know, did you bring me sacrifices in the wilderness? Yet you take up these foreign gods for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. So there you go. And that so his justice coming down it cannot just mean that the people suddenly make an abrupt turn from their sins and now they're going to just do everything that they were supposed to mm-hmm. do, right? Part of God's justice is that sin does not go unnoticed and, and not even just unnoticed, but that it actually will be uh, punished, that it will be judged in a very real way, right? It, it's not just like, well, I saw what you did there and I'm not very happy with you, but we'll let it slide this time. There's actually going to be a day where justice punishment is meted out. Well, but even before that day, and you know, maybe this is uh, more to the point too, uh, getting back in chapter four, part of God's bringing justice, part of God bringing the judgment is that he, he doesn't leave us without warning of the coming of the day of the Lord, right? He actually is calling us to turn away from our wickedness and very real, tangible ways, even in the world. And I know it's not very popular in some circles to to say this, but it is certainly biblical that God does send disasters upon his people, upon nations, in order to call them to repent. It's not just God looking down and saying, oops, I guess that happened. I guess now I have to do something about it. No, these things come from his hand. Amos 4 is clear about this. He says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all, in all your places. He's the one who sent the famine. 
yet you did not return to me. And it's not just the fam- chapter four chronicles a whole, I think there's five, mm-hmm. five mentions here of all these things that the Lord sent yet. And the refrain is yet you did not return to me. Yeah. And so then, you know, okay, I couldn't get your attention through all these things. Now, here I come, uh, prepare to meet your God. I'm, I'm going to come myself. So this one out there to you guys, a lot of people are going to say, well, it's only in this specific instance or in these few specific instances where God tries to send a message via weather. We're selective deists sometimes, right? Yeah, pretty so much. So what, what do you think of the, what do you, what do you say to that idea? It's only in these specific instances that are revealed to us that God uses weather or nature in such a way. I guess an earthquake wouldn't necessarily be weather, but but we'll we'll say natural things. I think that there is some validity to that, right? There is it's only in the it's only in the revealed texts here where you can say like here's why this was sent. But I think that that you don't want to push that too far because then then you just have kind of random weather occurrences. Yeah, you're kind of limiting God's omnipotence. Yeah. Right. And uh, in in Amos, you also have these, if calamity happens in the city, where did it come from? Did not the Lord send it? And there's the and there's the issue, and you do have this, the idea that God sends calamity. You have it elsewhere. I, the, I the Lord, make and do all these things. Mm-hmm. Now we can just roll, we can roll our eyes at it, and we can kind of ignore it, but it's still there, and it's still true. So what's the Christian to do with that? I th- I think what you're getting at, David, was kind of is is well to the point. You know, saying that we cannot say God sent this particular storm because of this particular sin because we don't have that kind of clarity, right? But at the same right. time, God does send these things as a way of calling us to repent because there will come a day in which all of these things kind of come to the head. There will be earthquakes. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be all of these things prior to the end as signs and as warnings that the the summer fruit is is near, that the the day of the Lord is drawing close. And so we don't want to just dismiss these things as, you know, God's machine working and just kind of having some hiccups and misfits every now and then. God doesn't really know what's going on either. No, this is God's way of calling us back to himself to say that there will come a day when... I will come in justice when I will come and I will finally bring all things to an end. And when that day happens, we won't have an excuse. And even if it's just as simple as realizing your frailty and your weakness in the face of a tornado or an earthquake or a particularly strong storm of some kind, even if it's just that, that's enough to remind you of your weakness, your frailty, your utter dependence upon God. Mm-hmm. The fact that we live in a fallen world, a dog barks at you, let that be a reminder that you live in a world of sin that is not that is not where God originally put us in the garden, and mm-hmm. that we are ever looking for that relief from sin and from the consequences of sin. Everything, every calamity in the world, look at it that way. Look at it as a reminder of our lack and a reminder of God's gracious provision. Absolutely. Sure. So with these last few minutes here, then, let's revisit the concept of justice. Not go back into a discussion of social justice, but let's talk about the justice of God, what that looks like, and why that is very important for us as Christians. 
and for the world, really. If God was not actually concerned about his justice and didn't act to bring about his justice, then the state of things in, like we have in Amos would just continue on perpetually, and it would only get worse and worse, right? So the fact that he actually is going to act to bring about his justice is a outflow of his love, right? And and so often those things are pitted against each other, right? Well, I desired justice, or I desire mercy and not sacrifice. A lot of times you get the same kind of idea floated out there that God doesn't, God's justice is a bad thing, and his love is a better thing. Well, really, these are two, they're two parts of the whole, right? What kind of love would he have if it, if it wasn't concerned with justice? Is that getting at what you're, where you guys want to go here? Well, I, th- I certainly, I think, because where do we see a clearer picture of God's justice other than his son, Jesus Christ, right? And I, and maybe this is where people kind of bristle a little bit and we say, oh, but, you know, Jesus is showing us mercy so that we aren't getting the justice that we deserve, you know, that God would bring his judgment down upon us. And that's true. We are receiving mercy, but mercy is not the opposite of justice, Mercy and injustice are not contrary ideas. Mercy that God shows us is actually because of his justice, the justice that he shows towards Jesus Christ. <laughs> that's a, now that's a way we don't usually talk. Right, but, we need to, but, but it's very important that we do fathom this, that God is not just letting you off the hook. He's not merely wiping the dead away and calling it good. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, no, more specifically, through the active and passive obedience of Christ, through Mm -hmm. his sinless life and his holy death, he pays for the wages of our sin. This is necessary. Justice is satisfied in Christ, our sins imputed to him, and then his righteousness imputed to us. God is isn't just going to merely wink at sin. He can't. We serve a thrice holy God and his law must be satisfied. The only person that can do it is him. And it's done on our behalf through him, through the son, Jesus Christ. That's very important that God is mercy. Yes. God is love. Yes. But God is holy, 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 and his law will be satisfied. And it is satisfied, thanks be to God. The, the, a great verse for this, and, and one that I think is near and dear to every Christian's heart, is Romans three. in Romans 3, where it, it talks about God putting forward his son, Jesus, as a propitiation for our sins, that is satisfying his, his just demands and satisfying his wrath on sin, all, at which we hinted that we didn't really read them, but hopefully our listeners are going to read Amos and see these very vivid descriptions of God, God's just punishment on sin. Well, that, as you guys are saying, this is clearly what happens at the cross. And in Romans 3, it goes on to say, so that he might be just, right? And the one who justifies the ungodly. So, so his concern for justice is, this is at the heart of our, of our faith, right? Uh, we can't just throw it away and say, well, it's, it's too harsh. Uh, we don't want to talk about that. Why not? It's, it's great. It's beautiful. So with the last couple minutes here then, help the Christian understand how he should think, knowing that the day of judgment is coming, knowing that God's justice will roll roll down like mighty waters. How should the Christian ponder upon that? 
Well, I think the first thing we have to do is to have a real and a healthy and a holy fear of that day. And maybe, the, again, that's not a way that we like to talk because, you know, we think fear bad. You know, we don't want to be afraid. But in, in reality, I mean, Amos is quite clear that it is a day of darkness. I mean, it is a day that on which all things will be revealed. The books will be opened and nothing will be hidden that was ever done from the foundation of the world. But on that day, I mean, if we had no, no recourse whatsoever, then there would be no hope. It would be a day entirely of darkness and of God's perfect justice rolling down like ever flowing streams. But we do have a, an advocate, right? right? So let's say a Christian's worried. He's troubled. He knows he's a sinner. He knows he needs forgiveness. What ought the Christian to do? Where can the Christian go for comfort and assurance knowing the day of the Lord is coming? To Jesus. <laughs> All right. Okay. Pastors, where do we find yeah, Jesus? This is where you, you go to the church. Right? And you, <laughs> there we and you go. There we go. Pastor, um, yeah. who, who every week we say things. Think of our, our public uh, confession. Now, I think private confession is really what that person needs and, and private absolution for the, the comfort and the assurance of yeah, your, these sins have been paid for. God's justice has been satisfied. And when he comes again, you know who's coming. It's Christ coming as our judge, of course, which Zelman's right. It does bring a healthy fear and awe, but he's coming as as our savior too, uh, to save us from the sinful world around us, to save us from evil and to destroy the works of the devil once and for all. Um, so go to go to church, talk to your pastor. Well, and, and two, and also with that, I mean, you want to take the imagery of the God of hosts with this. When Christ returns with his tens of thousands, you know, he will be like a king riding before his army, which is a terrible and, and fearful thing to behold a king, you know, in his in the fullness of his power. But when you know that he is on your side, that he is coming to to save us from this present evil age and to bring us out of this valley of tears to himself in heaven. We will see him, you know, as as the victorious king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, who is our savior and who has come to us, like you say, in his word and in his sacraments. Yeah. Right. Well, I think that's going to do it, guys. Any any last words? I think it'd be good to to see this in connection with like the look. Think about Second Peter, right? The kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance, and so in in all of this, as you're as we're talking about God's judgment and His wrath on sin. The point is that now is the time of salvation. Now is the acceptable time to actually come to repentance. I sent you all these things, he says in chapter four, yet you did not return to me. Well, now is still that time where it's open for us to return and find comfort and peace in Christ. Amen. This has been A Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard, have questions or anything, want to know more, check out our Facebook group, Word Fitly Posting. That's Facebook at Word Fitly Posting. Trying to get some uh, interaction going there uh, with the listeners. We'd love to hear from you. Also, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org. You can contact us there, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi and David Apple. God love you, and God bless.